Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. This is Mike Lewis uh, with the Fanalytics podcast. We are going to talk to a consumer psychologist, Morgan Ward. Say hello, Morgan. Hi. One of the big flaws in the world of analytics, uh, beyond sports analytics, including marketing analytics and business analytics, is a failure to consider, well, essentially what's going on inside the head of the consumer or, or, or the fan. And the reason why I think it's gotten a little bit worse is, you know, this world of analytics has actually become more focused over time on training people to be statisticians or teaching them to how to be programmers or data scientists. And, and maybe that's where I should put it, that as this world has really embraced the concept of the data scientist, I think one of the things that's really been lacking is developing an understanding of you know the decision maker, which is at the heart of all of these things. And so uh, by way of a bigger introduction, Morgan's a professor of, I'll, I'll say consumer psychology, but of marketing at, at Emory University. I hope that this is essentially kind of part one of a series of podcasts that focus more on the behavioral or the psychological foundations of, um, well, let's say, of, of sort of the underlying decision making in this world of analytics. So again, thanks for being here, Morgan. Thank you for having me. So Morgan, as, as we were talking, one of the, the phrases that you use is that in your research, you will, what, what was the phrase? So I don't get it wrong. Social identity theory. Okay. And so I, I'm going to ask you to define that, but you know, it, very at the beginning of this, this, this sounds like something that's going to be really relevant to this uh, realm of sports and understanding fan behavior. So what is social identity theory? Social identity theory is the understanding of who you are relative to who other people see you as. So we are parents and children and professors and, you know, maybe we're intellectuals or maybe we're not intellectuals or people who do analytics. And a lot of those identities are defined by who you are in relation to other people. And that's why it's a social identity. Okay, so it's how I think of myself. How I think of myself oftentimes in relation to others. So a parent has a role of being a parent to a child, for instance. 
a child, the role is being the child of a parent. So it's defined really in relation to somebody else. Okay, so if I come, you know, get right into this and this idea of uh, sports fandom, so social identity theory, on on some levels, it's as simple as I define myself as I'm a LeBron James fan, Mm -hmm. or I'm a Golden State Warriors fan. Right. So that's defining your identity in relation to how you feel about another individual. Or if you're a Golden State Warriors fan, you define yourself as part of a larger group of people, a larger group of fans other people who support the Golden State Warriors and who, for instance, have particular adversaries or other people that they're not part of their, their in-group. So I'm, I'm part of a club. You're part of a club. In-group sounds like a better academic word, but, but I'm club. part of a club. A group, yeah. A, a group, and within that group we have a, I guess, a set of shared experiences. or a sh- One of the things I thought was interesting what you sa- just said is we also have a shared group of, I, I guess, things we love and things we also hate, yeah. a, a shared group of enemies. A shared group of enemies, and there's actually a bunch of research going on right now that says that your enemies are more important and defining and actually sort of what makes you feel attached to other people more than the things that you share. So having a common enemy might a, a common set of people we condemn a condom enemy <laughs> <laughs> right having a common enemy may create connection within a group well in and as we were um getting ready to turn the mics on today we had the the tv on and um it strikes strikes me that we actually have a common enemy in terms of the world of sports who was that the Patriots. Okay, so this is what's great. So Morgan is a, like I said, a consumer psychologist. Um, Morgan, are you a sports fan? I would not call myself a sports fan. <laughs> and so the, the the person on the TV was Tom Brady. Tom Brady. I knew it, though, and, and, when I saw him. And what was your initial reaction just seeing Tom? I said, I hate that guy. I hate his smirk. And this is this is what's great. So when I when I teach the sports marketing class at at Emory, you know, I'll talk about this idea of you know we love certain teams, and we'll also go into the fact that we kind of need villains in the realm of sports. And it's interesting to me. So would you cast Tom Brady as a villain, or is that too harsh? I would cast him as a personal villain. But one of the things I said is that um, my family is a big fan of the Patriots, and. There are people in my family who think that guy is great and will support him and and fight to the death on the fact that he did not deflate a bunch of footballs and that kind of thing. You know, they really have a lot of scientific reasons why that was fine. Okay, and and I think this is great because I, I think you know Tom Brady is as I was talking about when I teach a class. Tom Brady is one of these names, and the, the Patriots are one of these teams, which tends to inspire either a really strong positive reaction. Or a really strong negative reaction. Yeah, they're polarizing. We we can almost do this for you know just about any team. You know, so I, I love a certain team. Maybe it's the Chicago Bears. Maybe it's the uh, New England Patriots or this the Los Angeles Lakers. And part of that is going to come with then me kind of probably hating another group of people. Right, right, right. and that keeps you part of your group. It keeps you really affiliated with the other people who agree with you change directions a little bit or slight detour. So where does um, where do these social identities come from? The social identities come from 
the way people treat you, the way that you have grown up and the images or values that you have grown up with and been supported by your parents and your peers and your friends and your culture, you know, more broadly. And also your own belief systems play a role in this. So we can grow up with one set of values or one identity and these things also change and evolve over time so you can you can adopt identities all the way into your 40s and 50s so it's the positive feedback i get uh, i'll just focus on when i'm growing up the positive feedback i get growing up in terms of and just to make it about fandom that when i wear the jersey the hometown team yeah i'm part of the group i'm part of the the group you're part of the group you know other people point out to you that they also support that group you know it's something that you do to connect with your peers or your dad or you know maybe your siblings so you get all sorts of positive feedback some of it spoken some of it behavioral just people who feel closer to you when you express the values of the group so is there a bit of a you know the the structure the thing that causes these things because it can be deep things but also sort of bandwagon kind of things I show up with the the popular team and somehow I'm now one of the popular kids. Right. So you can um, affiliate with other people via affiliation with the group, right? Maybe you want to assimilate with a certain set of people. You start to understand the clothes they wear and the music they listen to, but also the teams they support. It's another way of fitting in with the people you want to fit in with. Well, are there... Do you think there's important gender differences in all of this? Is this more of a, um, does, does social identity theory work differently across men versus women? And, and and I just, I'm triggering on basically what you just said, that maybe we're not supposed to say this kind of stuff anymore, but men would seem to bond more over a shared fandom with a team where women, you know, bond over, well, you know, I have no idea. Well, I think that obviously it's a hot button topic. And by saying yes, it would probably sort of draw some criticism from women. Let's but... go there. Let's get let's <laughs> let's draw some criticism. But I would say if we're really going to stereotype and look at who is the larger group of people that um, engages in strong fandom, it would be men. Yeah. So there's probably going to be differences there. I suppose, in, you know, as, a, as an outsider in, in a bit of a way, you know, women will will still bond over entertainers perhaps mm-hmm. Beyonce Beyonce okay new album can't wait to see it I have no idea oh but back to sports so <laughs> I think that women also care about sports and they also um, support certain but athletes do they, but do they use it as a social identity I, mean, I don't think it's as strong a social identity for women maybe certain women maybe certain groups but it appears to be sort of a more general identity that men engage in than women engage in. And we can say perhaps it's perhaps it's changing. I right? think it's evolving, right? Or I, it's changing. I mean, I do think you see a lot of women, let's say, wearing the um, a, a manifestation of this is is wearing the jersey of the team about as hard, you know, as direct as it's going to get in terms of that. Yeah, I think that. And you see in different social settings, women are more affiliated. So when I went to grad school at UT Austin, the women were much more affiliated with that football team than when I went to my undergrad institution at Cornell, for instance. <laughs> women did not care at all there. And I think it was just a more important social group at UT Austin where it's such a, a huge and and popular football team. Well, and how do we express these? I mean, I, I guess as we're talking about sports, I come back to this idea of the jersey. Mm-hmm. 
beyond sports and sort of wearing the jersey, how do we express these social identities in more general terms? So I think participation is an important way. So going to the games, talking about the games, using specific language that affiliates you. Uh, I think we talked about the fact that when people are talking about a, a team they really affiliate with, they often use the words we. So as if they are part of the team. And so you can really express fandom and affiliation in a bunch of ways from how you talk about it to how you physically express yourself with clothing to what behaviors you show, like watching the the team or buying the products that members uh, endorse, that kind of stuff. So all different ways. Okay, so this word we. We. And now we're thinking beyond sports and in terms of more general marketing. Mm-hmm. That seems like the marketers, wow, what a great scenario, right? If you can get the, the consumer, and fans are just consumers, to say we about a brand. How can marketers make that happen? Whether they're marketing for a team or, you know, if you haven't thought about that, if you're marketing a consumer product, how do we get to we? Yeah, and I, I don't hear it as much with consumer products. I, I think it's a very specific fan so maybe it's not even possible with most consumer products. So why are sports then unique that you can turn that into a we situation? Well, I think that sports still have a social component where products tend to be sort of an individual consumption experience. But I think when you say we, it means you're actually literally a part of the group, literally a part of the team. We shouldn't have made that play we should have, you know, whatever, kicked the ball when we didn't kick the ball or whatever the the answer is. But I don't hear that even when people are talking about brands they're highly affiliated with, like Apple. People still don't say we. It's still there's a separation between product and self. Yeah, we we have not launched the iPhone X. We have not, <laughs> and we never will. <laughs> there's always a distinction there between company and, and consumer as far as as sort of the the general consumer and sort of taking a really broad view of marketing which which i tend to do i don't know if you tend to do it as well when i think of the we's i'm a sports fan you know we we won or lost maybe political affiliation maybe religious affiliations that we kind of have the we's where else we have those we's yeah absolutely so these other groups that you actually feel like a participant in um, it's pretty unique, though, for a team because you're not a participant. You're a participant in the observation of a team, but not in the decision making. Well, and it's interesting, right? You you mentioned the college realm of UT Austin. Well, mm-hmm. then I guess technically you are part of the we at the college level. But I'm not part of the team. I'm part of the observers of the team. The well, fans. you're you're part of the university, right? I'm part of the university. I guess that's true. So we there's sort of a blanket identity between the the team and the university. So is, is that the key that um, that what you need to do is you need to inspire that connection maybe to the home city in the case of pro sports? Yeah, maybe something that represents you as a person, and maybe that's the the distinction that Apple doesn't really represent me as a person or coke doesn't represent me as a person but the golden state warriors certainly represent the place i live which i'm highly affiliated with it's interesting when i think about sports a lot of times i think about sports as a lens to view sort of more general analytics or marketing topics and i've always put sports out there as sports fandom out there as interesting because it's sort of the most extreme kind of consumer behavior oh why do you think that well 
I think that just the the level of passion you can oh. have for a sports brand versus just about anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned Apple. Is that the brand people are most, the consumer brand that people are most passionate about? I tend to think Apple's one of, if you look at what Apple does and people's sort of passion for the brand, I think they, they tend to be on, higher on the list. I mean, historically, people might have thrown some of the car companies out there. Mm-hmm. That's you know, probably uh, true. Uh, you know, I, I drive a Corvette or something. Right. Yeah. Still, you might talk about yourself as part of a, a group of Harley Davidson consumers, mm-hmm. but they still probably wouldn't say the company is a we. Well, that's kind of it. So to me, this has suddenly become kind of an interesting question is why does that line exist, that line of we? And when to when when is it possible to get to we? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, how do you create a brand that is so consuming of your identity that it starts to feel like you are actually part of it and we could say you know you just got to sort of make that authentic connection but i don't i don't think that really exists in the realm of sports right no i don't think so but i do think it's such a powerful way of expressing self that people actually do feel almost fused with the brand you know that people think of sports teams as having certain values and ideas associated with it and if those ideas and values are connected enough with self that it actually does start to feel like you are the brand or you are the team i think we're on to something interesting here i just don't know um and it seems like maybe some of the entertainment categories you you could as well started to get to the the we or really that connection I just wonder what the boundaries are in terms of what most marketers tend to tend to work on. Yeah, so if you're outside of sports. And entertainment. But but even, you know, sports might be unique in terms of the we, even if we start to buy about other celebrities or, I don't know, you know, Harry Potter I know has some hardcore fans. We probably don't get to the we, right? Right. I don't think you get to the we. I think that you start to feel very affiliated, but I don't think you become part of the brand. I agree that authenticity and really making emotional connections is probably an important an important component of creating sort of a fusion or an overlapping of identities between the individual and the brand. It's probably pretty hard to do that when you're still a consumption a product. Let, let, let's switch to the other side of this. And so this kind of unique level of consumer passion exists, consumer mm-hmm. engagement. How can this be leveraged? I mean, something that's always big, and we've had a couple of uh, guests on the podcast talking about sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So does sponsorship, is that sort of where this kind of social identity, kind of where the rubber meets the road and where, you know, you can actually start to have some marketing or profitability impact? Right. So the general idea from the perspective of the brand is that people feel so positive and that feeling is so emotionally driven that they will actually get some runoff of that positive emotion, right? So if you truly, truly love a particular team and that team sponsors Gatorade, then that love should translate to love of that product as well. So that's um, how they generally leverage it, that they're hoping that these things kind of generalize into their product as well. Okay. So it's a, it's a transfer and a, I guess I would say it's a transfer of the brand equity of, you know, at the local level of the Falcons or of, you know, when we're talking about basketballs in the news or, you know, the series just finished golf. (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, historically, you know, the transfer of the Tiger Woods brand equity to something. Well, Nike. 
you know, maybe the best example of that would have been Michael Jordan, right? Mm, right. Because at his height, Michael Jordan's was Michael Jordan was endorsing Nike, Coca Cola, McDonald's, Hanes, every major brand, Ballpark Franks. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, I didn't know about Ballpark Franks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, but but so it's interesting. So I'm a fan of Michael Jordan, and somehow that makes me prefer a brand of hot dogs or a brand of t-shirts? I guess there's probably two things at play. One is you probably see this person that you care about a lot or that you affiliate with or would like to affiliate with using particular products. You may not even notice the products. When you say affiliate, what what does that mean? Want to be engaged with, want to be considered like, be close to, Aspirational in addition to connected. Yeah, and so there's a difference between who you actually affiliate with and who you'd like to affiliate with, but let's just say affiliate with. Um, And so you might see this person using these products. You might not even notice the products, but marketers know that even if you're not fully processing what they're using, when you are faced at the shelves or in the store with a bunch of products, you'll actually gravitate towards these things you've seen but not fully recognized. So there may be some sort of unconscious process. The conscious process, of course, is that in order to be like this person or to be considered similar to or connected to, and you you may actually make it your goal to see what they buy and use, and then you would use those things as well as a way of feeling similar to. So, so sticking with Michael Jordan, the Air Jordan tennis shoes... And that's, or, sorry, you know, basketball shoes. Basketball shoes, right. So that would be sort of the most explicit way of being close to him, right? You're wearing a product that literally says his name. We the same. Right? <laughs> we so, are the same. We the same. <laughs> we the same. But the hot dogs. The hot dogs. Is it just that kind of, what'd you say, subliminal or unconscious? Unconscious process. You see him eating the hot dogs. I mean, you would hope that they had branding on the hot dogs or near it so that people would actually have an, a, a moment to um, at least have it in their perceptual field. But you may not spend the time trying to understand what hot dog brand he consumes. It's interesting, and that kind of strikes me that maybe when people do these kind of sponsorship deals, there needs to be some, you know, I think a lot of times these sponsorship deals are based on the idea of, well, how many times are people going to, you know, see this connection? So impressions is a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. But it strikes me, the way this discussion goes, it strikes me as you might want to be, well, you might want to pay different amounts for impressions depending on if they're direct versus unconscious. Unconscious. And actually, you know, I read some really interesting research where, People as consumers felt like when they saw the the celebrity using the product, but not in a sponsored way. So the sort of stars are just like us pictures that you see where they're just sort of using the product, but theoretically aren't trying to sell it, that that was even a more compelling sale as if they chose it and not that they're being paid to use it. So it could be that sponsorship is not as effective in the form of a commercial and is more effective when you just sort of catch a glimpse of them using these these things. And, and on a theoretical level, that has something to do with the fact that this is you're trying to establish this we this through the use of the product? Yeah, this authentic use of the product, not a paid use of the product. I would select this if I had all products available to me, which theoretically they would. 
that that makes a lot of sense and you know using a and, and again we'll we'll focus on Michael Jordan mm-hmm. you know wearing the basketball shoes look he, he's getting paid for that but he's chosen them right he's chosen them is he just randomly drinking coke right he's at a restaurant he he chooses coke those are even more compelling to consumers okay i, I don't know that that that's a tough one right it's almost like you want to sponsor them to be and I don't know if this was the right language, rather than a spokesman, an influencer? Yeah, an influencer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That might be increasingly impossible to do, right? I think it's increasingly possible because we have so much access to celebrities, right? We don't just see them on commercials anymore. We see them on Instagram. We see them on Facebook. They're, all, they're in all sorts of media outlets. So I think that's a component that people are using more and more. I mean, maybe this is a question for, you know, future research, if you see someone on, let's say, Instagram or Snapchat, and they are showing you the can of soda they're drinking, aren't we also at the point where we we feel like they're trying to manipulate us? I think we're more critical, certainly, but I think that we can't completely discount it or we won't completely discount it. And It's, it's like real-life product placement, right. right? It's like we've gone from the movies to actually just... Yeah, just walk around with this, Just walk around. Kim Kardashian's paid like a million dollars at this point to walk around with things or put them on her Instagram, you know, just one picture. It's been that effective. Well, what kind of things is she showing on her Instagram? Beauty products. She was showing these jelly bears that make her hair grow longer. Okay, we're going to have to stay there for a second. So (laughs) the gummy bears make her hair grow longer? How is that? She says you just pop a few gummy bears and your hair looks like Kim Kardashian's hair. I mean, of course, she has extensions, but... So you get all sorts of uh, information on this podcast. (laughs) Now, but is that the same type of potential thing? Like, can I almost make the case that then the consumer is saying, we, Kim and I have the same hair. We use the same product. We use the same product, right? I, I have a a periscope into Kim's life. I'm going to use those products. I'm similar to Kim. I can be similar. I have access. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the, uh, you know, so is the reality star kind of marketing, is that the closest to some of this kind of sports fandom? I think that that's sort of the direction that we're headed, that we want more access, that we're used to more access, and these sort of traditional forms of marketing, a big ad campaign, are becoming less effective. We're just really critical consumers at this point. We've been exposed to that for long periods of time, and we like things that are more subtle and, to us, quote, more authentic. Does this stuff work past a certain age for consumers? Oh, so you think that this is more effective with children? Or uh, well, I'm not kids? sure. I mean, you know, because I, I think one of the things that's always been interesting about sports is you can kind of have this passion from, you know, 8 to 80 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When you bring up the example of Kim Kardashian, I can I can see similar similarities in terms of how this is structured. But I can't quite imagine that that kind of fandom is as enduring. And so I'm trying to figure out what the boundary conditions are, what makes one different from the other. I think as we age, we get more critical of marketers in general. Just we feel we're more likely to screen because we feel like we want to avoid manipulation. So I think as a younger person, you are probably more malleable and more manipulatable than you are as an older person. And so I'm less likely to take on a one of these brands or teams as something to build my social identity when I feel the manipulation, when I can see the marketing. I I absolutely think that's true. And I think when you're younger, you're still open to the suggestion of others. 
because you're still defining yourself. So in the case of teams, mm-hmm. I'm just sort of going to speculate here. Maybe the key is that affiliation with the city. Affiliation with the city so, or some sort of group you know, that defines you, right? Like I'm just looking at the at the TV in the background here. And so there's Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so mm-hmm. I'm a Cleveland guy, which means that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Cavaliers fan. Right. I think that at this level, that's true. But then we get into the Olympics and we're defined by our entire country, right? It's Team USA or well, Team But isn't that, that that's actually kind of a, a great example because, you know, one of the, um, this year is the Men's World Cup and mm-hmm. the, the U.S. is not, In is it. not playing. <laughs> but we're taking Mexico's, right? Okay. We're, we're interested in being affiliated with Mexico. But... In the years where the Women's World Cup is going on, the U.S. has historically been the dominant team in that. And there's been quite a bit of interest in the women's national team that has then not translated to any kind of enduring fandom or support for a women's professional league. So you're saying that even though it every once in a while we can get behind it when it's a very sort of superordinate playoff that in general we don't care about it well i i don't want to i don't want to say that i want i don't want to go that far i think that that's probably true i just don't want to say it explicitly <laughs> but i but i think it kind of goes back to what you're what you were and i don't want to put words in your mouth either that this idea that you know we're making this kind of social identity connection to the u.s team and when that U.S. team is sort of taken away or when the city name is taken off the, the mm. jersey, then this stuff all kind of falls apart. Right. So when it no longer represents you, it doesn't matter to you anymore. And I think that, for instance, with the women's team, it's not something that we've grown up caring about. Now, this would be a different thing if we lived in another country. As children, we cared about our country's team but it isn't something that's defined our identities as um as little people or little kids and i think for that reason we don't stay as connected to it but we may for limited periods of time care about it when it's an important goal that's associated with our country very cool thank you very much morgan a lot of good stuff hope to have you back to talk more about consumer psychology and how this kind of hits the world of sports thank you for having me